You know, if your kids are lacking pencils, you can go back there. Mr. Krause and Mr. Sosnowski are, are getting some. Uh, you can open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. Just a few announcements before we begin. We're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end of my message today. If you're a believer in Christ, feel free to take hold of that, take part in that. After service, we're going to have potluck. invite you to stay. Some of it is out there. Uh, it's going to be a good time. It's an opportunity for us to spend time together as a church, to be together. Um, also, you can look on your bulletin for other things or more children to sponsor. You can impact a life sponsoring some children in Nepal. Uh, other ministries are going on, whether it's men's equippers or kids with the or ministries of the youth. You can do that as well. Well, this morning we are going to speak about Satan. We're going to talk about the works of Satan. C.S. Lewis said it well when he said, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive, unhealthy interest in them. It's a great perspective of Satan his demons, in, the other, in other words, right, when dealing with the demonic world, you have a danger on either side of how much attention we pay to it. If you choose to ignore the reality of demons in this world, you run into the danger of being unprepared to stand against Satan and his schemes. But if you're overly concerned about it and overly occupied about Satan and his roles, the demonic activity in the world, you run the danger of neglecting the very thing that's going to help you in the struggle, in your fight of faith against the devil's attacks in your life. Well, in 1 Peter, it is interesting. We've gone four and a half chapters hearing nothing about the devil. And now here it is, midway through the fifth chapter, we come upon Satan and what he does. We've heard much already of trials and fleshly lusts and sin and unbelief and slander and evil and suffering and testing and reviling, but we've heard nothing of Satan yet until now. In chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Peter addresses the work of Satan in our lives and tells us how it is we can overcome his attacks. Appropriately, this morning I've entitled my message, Overcoming Satan. Before I read these words, I just want to make a, a plug here for working through texts of, bio, of, of Scripture. I've been going through First Peter um, about the last year or so. Uh, I think this is maybe my 38th message I counted this week on First Peter. And... Um, of all the verses in First Peter, of all the 105 verses, he focuses two of them on Satan. So as we've kind of gone through, um, it really gives us a good balance. We know that we're in God's balance in terms of, of focusing our attention upon Satan or, or not, focusing just upon the evil and slander without focusing so much upon its source. So trust that, that you see just the advantage of walking through the Bible verse verse. If we're topical, we could easily fall on one side of of being so much into the influence of Satan that we're unbalanced. Or we could neglect that topic altogether. So it's really healthy for us as we have done as we've done. Well, here we go. First Peter gives us three commands in these two verses. I trust you'll be able to see them. If not, you'll, you'll pick them up very quickly afterwards. But First Peter 5, verse 8, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. 
The first two commands come right here. Do you see them? Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. They come staccato fashion, right at the beginning. Almost no transition at all. It's almost as if Peter's trying to jolt us into the danger. He says, be alert, be aware, there's danger out there. There's a lion who's seeking to destroy you. Now before we look at the lion, let's look at these two commands. The first one is to be sober. It's my first point this morning. Be sober. It's the opposite of being drunk. Now, Peter here is not advocating that we just nearly need to abstain from alcoholic beverages. But he's using this imagery to describe an alertness that we ought to have to the danger. Right? The drunken driver gets in trouble because he's not alert enough when he drives to see another car coming or to stop quickly enough at a stop sign or to watch out for a pedestrian or to even see the curve in the road. He, he's, not, he's not ready to act quickly enough. And the drunken man gets in trouble because he's not alert enough to measure the effects of his words. He lets unwholesome words come out of his mouth. And Peter's exhortation here is to be sober in spirit, pertains to the, the dangers of Satan around us. We're not to be drunk regarding Satan. We are to be in control of our minds so that we're not able to react when Satan and his attacks come upon us. Now, in several instances, Peter's already used this word here in 1 Peter. It is appropriate when undergoing suffering is to have a sober mind, is to have a sober spirit, really to think clearly of what's going on. You can see back in chapter 1, verse 13, he says in the midst of suffering and how to live, he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Here it is. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right? The idea here is that you need to have a clear understanding of the hope that's set before you. Clearly understand heaven so that the, the things of suffering that's around you might, might not be as big a deal to you because you know of the hope that is set before you. We need to understand that, that we as sinners will have a heaven someday. We don't deserve it, but it comes to us undeservedly. And we realize that the heaven we hope for will come. Sure enough, so we can look past the trials and the struggles that come. Be sober in your mind. Keep sober in spirit. Also, he used this word in chapter 4, verse 7. And again, the idea is the same. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Again, the same thing. The end is coming. It is near is what he says. Therefore, right, don't freak out, but be sober in your spirit. Don't be drunk in your thinking. Know there are dangers and temptations around. Know that it's coming. So be sober. And so also here in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he's saying there's a danger out there. The danger is a lion. He's in the square. He's looking to devour you. Second exhortation comes right here in verse 8. Be on the alert. You might translate this well. Be watchful. Be, be vigilant. Be awake. Like, don't be asleep. That's what he's saying. There's the opposite. Just as being sober is the opposite of being drunk, being awake is the opposite of being asleep. Because the one who's asleep is unaware of the dangers around him. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? When um, Jesus was there and Jesus knew there was trouble and Jesus knew there was danger. In fact, he was sweating drops of blood and he told his disciples, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. So he went off and prayed. And you know what the disciples did, right? Kids, what did the disciples do? They slept. 
And, and Jesus came back on several times and, and, and told them, hey, be wa- diligent. Watch. Jesus knew full well that there were dangers around Him. But they were unaware of the dangers. These disciples were. They were unaware that right now, at that moment, there was a mob of people assembling with clubs and spears, swords, ready to arrest Jesus by force. They were unaware that Jesus, right now, this very night, was going to go up to Jerusalem to suffer many things. He handed over the chief priests and they would kill Him eventually, only to rise up again the third day. And this was all happening tonight. But they didn't know that, so they slept. Even when Jesus repeatedly warned them, keep watching and praying. It's interesting here, when He said that, it's the same word in the Greek here. Be on the alert. Gregoreo. Saying this word, Gregorius comes from that, right? You know what the Gregorius person is? A highly social, outgoing person. The one who, who moves and is alert. In our family, I, I'm like not a pet guy. We won't have any dogs or cats or hamsters or maybe fish sometime in our house. But we do have one pet that I do allow in our house. Praying mantises. And uh, we recently captured a praying mantis outside. We had two for a while. We captured one outside and it had been in the wild for a long time. We put it in his little bug box and this guy kept moving all around and trying to escape and he like moved a lot compared to our other one which kind of just sat there and conserved energy. But this one's moving around trying to get out. We named him. Do you know what we named him? Greg. Gregorius, right? He's moving. He's active. Right here. Be watchful. Be on the alert. That's what he's telling his disciples what Peter's telling us to do. Be alert. Don't be sleepy. I mean, think about how it is that knowing danger, knowing there's danger out there, has an incredible way of keeping you alert. How much different it would have been in the Garden of Gethsemane if Jesus would have said something like this, guys, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death because tonight I'm going to be arrested. Tonight. In fact, right now, in Jerusalem, there's this mob assembling and they're going to come out and get me tonight and they're going to take me against... By, they're going to force me to go into Jerusalem and be crucified upon that cross. It's coming tonight. And so I am deeply grieved. Do you think the disciples then would have been able to stay awake? I think so. In fact, they may have taken him by force away from there so he wouldn't be arrested. But Jesus knew the plan was for him to go to the cross. See, when you know danger has a way of keeping you alert. When uh, Yvonne and I were in Minneapolis this past weekend, most of you know we were at the Desiring God National Conference. At one point we hooked up with a friend of ours who's a, who used to be a pastor. He's uh, in Minneapolis. He lives about a mile away from the convention center where we were. And uh, we're looking to have lunch. Our time was short. And he says, um, Stephen Vaughn, I know a place that nobody's going to be there. It's in this residential neighborhood. And so we walked and we followed. I don't know, we walked maybe half a mile. I'm not sure. It was something like that. And as we're walking along, he just nonchalantly made this kind of comment. He said, you know, we're walking through one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in Minneapolis. He said, you know, just over there, there are more arrests in the neighborhood just beyond this one than any other in Minneapolis. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a drug deal sometime here on the way. But we're pretty safe in the daytime. What do you think that did to our alertness? <laughs> I noticed I held my bag a little bit tighter. I uh, watched with, you know, suspect anybody who was walking by. I was kind of looking behind me, looking around. And, and I, I felt fairly safe because the guy we were with was, I don't know, he's maybe 6'3 and maybe 240. I'm not sure what he is. Big guy. I said, we're safe with you though, Dave, right? 
And uh, we walked through. But, but knowing the danger helped keep me alert. And so also Peter says, let me tell you a little bit about the danger that's going on here. Use a graphic illustration to demonstrate. He says, your adversary, you've got an adversary, you've got one who is against you. The devil, you've got one who will slander you and accuse you. This one prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Throughout the Scriptures, Satan is described in various ways. He's described as a serpent, the Garden of Eden. Revelation is described as a dragon. He's described as an angel of light. In 2 Corinthians, and each of these imageries have, have, a, have a way of describing the, the attributes of Satan. The serpent demonstrates his craftiness. The dragon demonstrates his ugliness, his destructive nature. The angel of light shows how deceptive he is. But here in 1 Peter, Satan's described as being a lion, which means he's powerful, it means he's to be feared. He's coming for destruction. Now, which of you would like to meet a lion in the open square? There's none of us except Anna would like to meet a lion in the. Much less a roaring lion. <laughs> she loves lions. A roaring lion. Making it known that this is his territory. Making it known that he is hungry. And that's the imagery that Peter uses here. A hungry lion waiting, desiring to have you for dinner. Just like Jonah was swallowed up by the big fish, so also Satan wants to swallow us up. Now for us, the danger of a lion isn't so much we can really relate to. Anna, in all due respect, I'm not quite sure you understand. I know you understand. But if we see a lion, what do we see? We see it in a picture. Maybe we see it at the zoo. But if you see a lion at the zoo, what, there's this big moat in front of you Right? And the lion's way out there. Or perhaps, right, maybe there's this the chain bar in front of a big, thick plexiglass that you can see this lion. You know, everything that we see of a lion is safe. But those to whom Peter wrote, there was a greater reality of lions in their life. Um, in, in Israel, Jerusalem, Bible times, lions were, were known to attack. In, in fact, uh, Samson encountered a lion on his way down to Timnah. David encountered a lion when he was out shepherding the sheep. An unnamed prophet was killed by a lion just outside of Bethel near Jerusalem. And I suspect that the danger of them encountering lions being over there in the Middle East was a little bit more than us. I've never seen a lion prowling around on the road or in the wilderness at all. Maybe in Africa, for preaching African church, there might be some things here for us, but not. But you know what? For these people, it's interesting, I think there's another level where not only just maybe they experience lions more than we do, but for them, the danger wasn't the lion in the street. For them, the danger was the lion in the den. And that was very real for them. In a very few short years, as persecution heated up against the Christian church, one of the favorite ways that the Romans killed believers in Christ was in the lion's den, in the Colosseum. You remember, Daniel was thrown in the lion's den. That was a favorite pastime of the Romans. And one of the earliest testimonies is a man named Ignatius of Antioch. Think about this, 107 A.D. Peter probably wrote this, we don't know, 50, 60 A.D., somewhere in that area. Just 50, 60 years later, Ignatius of Antioch was thrown to the lions. In 107 A.D., Emperor Trajan came to power 
and he threatened to persecute all who refused to sacrifice to the Roman gods. Ignatius was tried for his offense and proudly confessed himself to be, as he said, quote, a bearer of God because he said he had Christ within his breast. And Trajan then condemned him to be thrown to the lions at Rome. So they were in Antioch and taken to Rome over land and sea to Seleucia, to Smyrna, finally to Rome. He was thrown to the lions on December 20th, 1007. Here's what Phyllis Schopp, the great historian, writes. Ignatius was thrown into the amphitheater. Immediately the wild beasts fell upon him and soon nothing remained of his body but a few bones. The lions was a very real danger for those in Peter's day. So when Peter speaks to those scattered believers about the devil being like a roaring lion, maybe fearful thoughts enter their mind, and maybe that's some imagery that you know they're like the lions in the lion den waiting to come after us. They knew the language of figurative. They know the devil doesn't really roar. They know the devil doesn't really bear ugly teeth. But, you know what? The devil does roam upon the earth. One of the greatest illustrations in this, the Bible, is Job. Starting off describing that story, the book of Job speaks about his, his riches, how much he had. speaks about his children. speaks about his devotion to God. And very soon after that, after they described Satan, or described Job as one who's living an upright life, God has blessed immensely, many kids, much wealth, walking righteously before the Lord, worshiping Him, then Satan comes into the Lord's presence. And the Lord said, Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered, look at this, from roaming about on the earth and walking on it. Where have you come from, Satan? I've been roaming. He could have just equally said, I've been roaming like a lion looking for my, my prey. Just as Satan schemes back then, just like those in Peter's day, they're like ours in our day as well. Like a lion, he roams the earth looking for dinner. In that instance, in Job, he came back empty. He was empty. I don't know if the Lord had compassion on him or what, but the Lord said, I'll give you someone to devour. You ready? Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, God says, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now, it's interesting here. It's not like Job was unaware of... It's not like Satan was unaware of Job. He knew fully about him because Satan answered and says... Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in land, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to his face. In other words, Lord, yes, I know about Job. I know about him, but I can't touch him because you've put this hedge around him. But... But I know that if I can touch him, if you give me permission to devour him, he'll curse you to his face. God says, Job, have at it. You have permission. Though with some extent. Restraint. With some restraint. First restraint was don't touch him. And so you know what happened? In one day, Job lost all ten of his children when they were killed by the Sabaeans who attacked his older brother's home where they all had gathered for a party. He lost all of his 7,000 sheep and his 3,000 camels and his 500 yoke of oxen and his 500 donkeys. 
everything he lost. And yet, Job still praised the Lord. Remember what he said? He says, the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. Finish it with me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He still worshipped the Lord. Still walked with integrity. And then Satan requested permission to strike Job with sickness. His sickness is awful. And yet Job still had held fast to his integrity, even against the counsel of his wife, even in great pain. He stood rightly before the Lord. And I say Job's a great example of the theme of 1 Peter. Think about the afflictions that came upon Job were totally unmerited. You can read in Job 31 about how righteous a man he was, how he treated his servants with respect, how he cared for the poor, how he cared for the orphans and widows, how he gave clothing to those who were in need. And though he had great riches, he didn't put confidence in his riches. He was a righteous man through and through, and his suffering is exactly like Peter described. It was undeserved. I mean, consider with me, in 1 Peter, how many times Peter talks about suffering unjustly. Look at 1 Peter 2, 19. Servants being submissive to masters, says, This finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Right? You, you can work out there, I, I'm doing what's right, but I'm suffering for it. It's exactly what took place with Job. 1 Peter 3.14, same thing. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. In other words, you are righteous and you are suffering for that sake. And think of that is Job. Job suffered at the hands of Satan, at the hands of the Lord, precisely because he was righteous. God says, look upon Job, look how righteous he is. And that's what instituted, instigated Satan against him. 1 Peter 3.17 It is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what's right rather than for doing what's wrong. And Job suffered for doing what was right rather than for doing what was wrong. And true to the theme of 1 Peter, Job follows right along the line of that. There was glory after his suffering. God received great glory when Job continued to acknowledge Him, especially at the end. And God restored glory to Job, giving him ten more children and doubling his earthly possessions. What a perfect illustration of our text. Satan's roaming around on the earth, seeking someone to devour. Here's Job, a righteous man, so he gives him to devour him, try to devour him. But God was faithful to prohibit him from destroying Job. And Peter's telling us to be like Job, right? Suffer rightly. And the book of Job is all about suffering, and maybe Job didn't get things all exactly right has to do with suffering. It has to do with how you suffer rightly. Peter's telling us to be like Job. You know, the suffering that you experience today as believers in Christ may well be satanic. It might be like Job. We don't know of how much we suffer comes to the hand of Satan. But Peter mentions here the dealings here at the end of the book in chapter 5. At least gives us a thought that maybe... Maybe this is satanic. Job's struggles, it was never known to him that it was satanic. He never knew that Satan was involved in this whole deal. And so likewise, we may never know. It may just be that for us, as we stand firm in our faith, knowing that for a little while we're experiencing our suffering, but soon we'll experience the joy of our inheritance, it may well be that there's this this cosmic teaching lesson going on here. It may just be that God is teaching Satan and his demon a lesson with our lives. It says, I want you to consider Steve Brandon down there. 
He loves Christ more than He loves the world. I want you to consider Lance Milton down there. You Go at it, Satan. He's going to stay true to me. Or any one of you. It may well be that what took place in Job takes place more often than we think. There's this cosmic example going on. We're in the classroom of the saints. We know we're in the classroom of angels. Ephesians chapter 3 speaks about how the church, as it conducts itself, are are teaching for the angels to see how they can live in harmony and love with one another. And it may just be that the satanic attacks come the same way as well. See, there will be a day where your suffering will give God great glory. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. Peter says this, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, right, observing your good deeds, even though they're slandering you as an evildoer, eventually they will glorify God in the day of visitation. Maybe that your good deeds lead them to become believers in Christ. Maybe that just God gets glory and that they punished you wrongly and now they show their sin so greatly they're being punished forever. We don't know, but God will get glory when you walk righteously and even suffer for it. So there may be more going on in our suffering than meets the eye. And what's interesting is I think Peter's a great person to teach us of these things because Peter himself knew of satanic attacks upon his life. There's a time when he and his disciples, Jesus and his disciples, went up to Caesarea Philippi. It's kind of a retreat space for them, kind of away from the crowds of Galilee. They're up there and Jesus asks the question, who do people say that I am? gave various answers. And he says, but who do you say that I am? You remember what Peter said? He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He got to speak revelation of God. But a few moments later, we don't know how long, maybe five minutes later, maybe an hour Still, certainly same day, kind of same time, same context, Jesus began to tell them, I was going to go up, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raise up on the third day. And Peter did not like this plan. Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked Him, saying, God forbid, Lord, that this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You are not setting your minds on... God's interest, but on man. So think about this, what took place. In the one moment, he was receiving direct revelation from God to speak with the voice of God. And very quickly after that, he became the very voice of Satan. shows you that even in the highest privilege, being used of God to be his voice, Satan is lurking and looking for an opportunity. And maybe this is why Peter flows from a discussion about humility and pride in verses 5, 6, and 7, sliding here into the work of the devil. Verses 5, 6, and 7 tell us how about we need to be humble. And Peter knows how the experiences of pride, maybe there's pride in him when, when he realized that he was the voice of God speaking, how easily we can fall. This is told well in a story told by one of the travelers in uh, the Canterbury Tales. The story is a book that uh, Yvonne just recently bought, bought called Chanticleer and the Fox. Any of you familiar with this? Are you familiar with this, Anna? 
I think so. Anna is very familiar with this. Chanticleer and the Fox. So kids, this is story time. Chanticleer is the name of a name of a rooster. Okay, I, I want to bypass some of this. But here's Chanticleer. Can you see him? Andrew, can you see him? Let me just read about Chanticleer. He says, There's a yard fenced all around with sticks in which Chanticleer's mother had a rooster named Chanticleer. For crowing, there was not his equal in all the land. His voice was merrier than the merry organ that plays in church and his crowing from his resting place more trustworthy than a clock. His comb was redder than fine coral and turreted like a castle wall. His bill was black and shone like jet. And his legs and toes were like azure. His nails were whiter than the lily and his feathers were like burnished gold. There's Chanticleer. And as it goes on, just talks about his pride of everything that he is. And eventually he meets, if we go through here, maybe I get the next picture. Eventually he meets a fox. And this fox is like our lion. Cunning, sneaky. And as soon as he saw the fox, Chanticleer would have fled. But the fox spoke. For in those days, animals spoke. My dear sir, alas, where are you going? Are you afraid of me, your father's friend? The reason I came was only to listen to you sing, for truly you have made as merry a voice as any angel in heaven. My Lord, your father, God bless his soul. And also your courteous mother did me the great honor of visiting my house. Except for you, I have never heard anyone who could sing as your father did in the morning. In order to make his voice stronger, he would close both of his eyes. And he would stand on his tiptoes and stretch forth his long, slender neck. Now sing, sir, for holy charity. Let's see whether you can sing as well as your father. Get up. Close your eyes. Put out your breast. Speak high. Sing. Let me hear it. Puffed up with pride. You know what Chanticleer did. The story goes on. Chanticleer began to beat his wings and he stood high on his toes and stretched out his neck, closed his eyes and crowed loudly. At once the fox jumped up, grabbed Chanticleer by the throat and carried him toward the woods. Alas, but... Let me just leave it there. This trouble came upon him. Why? Because pride comes before destruction and it very well may be. There's a fox in your life that looks like a lion who's waiting for your proud heart to raise up. See, just as a a pride of lions will attack the weakest wildebeest, so also will Satan look for a weak member to attack. He's looking for those who are arrogant in their achievements, who delight in their deeds, who take pleasure in their performances, who are satisfied in their sanctification, who rejoice in their own righteousness. If that's you, beware. You may have a fox coming after you. But to the humble who are willing to confess their sins to one another, who consider others more important than themselves, who take the low road of selfless service, who properly think of themselves, they'll receive God's grace, right? What says in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, God's opposed to the proud gives grace to the humble. When you're humble, God's going to give you the grace, going to give you sustaining grace to overcome the schemes of the devil. Perhaps... 
As God's opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. Maybe one way that God's opposed to the proud is by letting Satan loose to go after you. So don't be proud. If you're proud, as Peter says, you may become a, a target. So you say, how do I battle? How do I battle the roaring lion? That comes here in verse 9. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Peter's counsel here isn't that you should go on the hunt seeking out the devil to defeat him. Nor is Peter's counsel you should try to rebuke the devil. Peter's counsel in this instance is that you should resist him. That's my third point. Resist him. He's telling us to take a defensive posture when battling against Satan. Literally, he says, stand your ground. Put your feet in the ground. Say, devil, I'm not moving. If need be, put on your football cleats and make a goal line stand. Stand against the devil. That's what he says. It's the word translated resist him. It is a military term describing holding a position where maybe you're shoulder to shoulder. You think about military or riot police. You know the riot police, when they, they come out, they come shoulder to shoulder, their shields in front of them, their helmets on, their visors down, and ready to march forward to keep the crowd under control. Right? You know what I'm talking about? That's how you should resist the devil. Nobody's going to get past the riot police, and nobody should get past you. Stand firm in your faith. It's interesting here that, that Peter's counsel is just like Paul's. When Paul spoke about spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, verse 11, he says, put on the armor of God. Put on your riot police gear so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. In other words, equip yourself with offensive weapons necessary against Satan. He says there in Ephesians chapter 6 about how we need to gird our loins with truth and put on a breastplate of righteousness, shod our feet with the gospel of peace, Take up the shield of faith which with you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Right there we see Satan as a warrior. You've got your shield. Be able to stop it. That's how you defend yourself. That's how you resist. That's how you stand firm. The helmet of salvation, right? Reflect on the gospel. Reflect upon your salvation and you'll be strong. And then you take the, the, the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. It's your offensive weapon. But here he's talking about taking defense. Taking your stand. Resist him. When he's coming upon you, you stand and you fight. And though Paul might be very filled with imagery, Peter comes down to one thing. He boils it down to one thing. He says, stand firm in your faith. Firm in your faith. Don't deny your faith. Don't fear the suffering that's going to come because of your faith, but keep believing the promises of God. That's what he's saying. Now, again, I think that Peter's counsel comes out of his experience. When Peter was under attack by Satan, Jesus said he'd pray for his faith. Shortly before, he was to be delivered up. And Jesus knew that he was about to encounter the suffering in Jerusalem. Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Again, like that Job scenario, right? Demanded permission to sift you, Peter, like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And I think Peter's counsel here is exactly 
from the experience of Jesus. As Jesus said, listen, Peter, Satan is roaring, roaming around looking for someone to desire. You are in his scopes. He's got his mind focused on you, and yet there's divine protection there. He, he can't get you apart from God. God has asked, he has asked permission from God to shift you like wheat. So I've prayed for you. May your faith not fail, right? Continue to fight the devil like you need to. Believing. That's what he tells us here. The battleground is the battleground of faith. Resist him firm in your faith. And it's interesting here, even in looking in First Peter, we see the suffering is always conquered by faith. I mean, look back at chapter 1. The antidote is always faith. In chapter 1, 3, and 4, Peter describes the great inheritance that awaits us in heaven because God has caused us to be born again to obtain this inheritance. And then he says, we are protected by the power of God through faith, verse 5. For salvation, ready to reveal the last time, though the devil still roar, roams around like a roaring lion, Satan's still under the sovereign hand of God. He never laid a hand upon Job without permission. And to sift Peter, he first needed permission as well. And to touch you, he needs divine permission as well. But the good news here is this, is that we are protected by the power of God through faith. It ought to give us comfort. In other words, as Edmund Clowney said in his commentary, Roaring Satan is a tethered lion. He can roar all you want, but God's got him on a leash. Because we are protected by the power of God Maybe you remember the scene in Pilgrim's Progress when Pilgrim's walking up to the lodge and he'd heard from some people, I think it was Mistrust and Timorous, I think. They said, oh, there are lions up there! And they got scared and they ran away. And Bunyan comments here that along the path, this Christian is coming up, he sees the lodge, he says, the lions were chained, but he saw not the chains. And upon seeing the lions, he was afraid. But the porter at the lodge, on the other side of the lions, happened to see him hesitate as if he would not come into the lodge. And so he called out to him, Is thy strength small? Fear not the lions, for they are chained. And they are placed there for the trial of faith, where it is as for discovery of those that have none. Keep in the midst of the path, and no hurt shall come unto thee. So Christian walked on. Right in the midst of the path. And the chained lions could come close, but they couldn't touch him. As Christian walked on, Bunyan says, trembling for fear of the lions, but taking good heed to the directions of the porter, he heard them roar, but they did him no harm. Because roaring Satan is a tethered lion. Because God will protect us from him. 1 Peter 1, verse 5. We are protected by the power of God through faith. So Peter's saying, resist the devil through faith. Continue to walk the straight path. You might hear the roaring of the lion, but a straight walk and God's mighty hand will protect you as you humbly walk with Him. Chapter 5, verse 6. And then we continue on. In this you greatly rejoice. Chapter 1, verse 6. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire may be found result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, it's the trials 
that demonstrate as you walk the narrow path and the lions come, but they are chained, that that's the proof of your faith that you are trusting in the Lord. See, it's through faith that we resist the devil. The idea comes again in verse 8 and 9. Christ, we don't see Him. Though you don't see Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, but you believe in Him. There it is, verse 8. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You're, you're believing, you're trusting in God's mighty hand to protect you as you humble yourself under Him. Chapter 4, verse 19. Again, we get the same thought. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God. You're suffering according to the will of God. It's God's will that you should suffer. It may be through the hands of Satan. It, it may not be. But those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing this right. That is belief. That is faith. That is trust. You say, I'm going to continue to do what is right. God, for some reason, you've allowed this to come. I'm entrusting. I'm believing you. That's what Peter says. Resist Him firm in your faith. Put your faith in God to carry you through the trials. You can see that in the psalmist over and over and over again. Well, Peter gives us a second way of how it is that we should overcome Satan's attacks. First is stand firm in your faith. Second is know that others are suffering as well. Second half of verse 9, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. In other words, the suffering you're enduring is not different than any other suffering of any other person. Other people are experiencing the same suffering you're experiencing. And I think the idea here is comfort. You're not alone in your suffering. Suffering is a natural part of Christianity. Our leader suffered upon the cross. We've been followed, called to follow His example. Chapter 2, verse 21. You've been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in His steps. As, as He suffered, so you are to suffer and know that many... Christians down through the ages have suffered as well. They've walked the Calvary Road. You can look to them for encouragement. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. All these who, who by faith conquered kingdoms and they performed acts of righteousness, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. All these people, by faith they conquered and so likewise we ought to see that if these people are suffering and conquering by their faith, so also we can suffer as well we're not alone and though in our day and age in our country it's rare for anybody to suffer because they claim to have God in their breast as Ignatius did 107 AD but we do suffer in many ways and there is comfort in knowing that others have suffered the same way you have suffered so I just think about the sufferings are you facing financial difficulties others have faced or are facing financial difficulties. Are you facing marriage problems? Others have faced or are facing marriage problems. Are you being treated unfairly at work because of your faith? Others have been treated unfairly or are being treated unfairly at their work. Is someone in your family suffering a deadly disease? Whatever, your parents have cancer. Are you suffering a deadly disease? Are you having something awful happen to you? Other families have experienced that as well. You lost a child at a young age. There are other families right here in the church who've lost children at young ages. Are you without a job? Others have been without a job and others have been and will be and are. Are your children going astray? Parents have had many children who have gone astray over the years. 
Be comforted with that. Are you without savings for your final years? No, there are many women without savings. There are many who are without savings. You have water problems in your basement. You go on and on and on. We've had water problems in our basement in DeKalb, and we are thankful that we don't have them here. Do you have an unbelieving spouse? Do you have a spouse that deserted you? Are you overwhelmed with the busyness of life? Uh, anything you suffer, there are always people who have suffered through it, and they've suffered well. I don't care what problems you're facing. I don't care what sufferings you're experiencing. Others have experienced the same thing and are experiencing it right now, and that ought to be comfort to your soul. Others are experiencing it and walking through it victoriously. And as Satan has sought to hurt and harm those, they've resisted firm in their faith and have seen God strengthen them through the trial. And that ought to comfort you that God can strengthen you as well. Well, last week at the Desiring God National Conference, Ivana and I particularly touched by a message preached by Mark Driscoll. He's like a controversial guy out there, but Ivana and I were touched this message his fifth point was this, pray for pastors. He talked about a lot of things, but he said pray for pastors, encouraging the people there. And he shared how to pray for pastors and their wives and their family. I guess the thing that comforted us so greatly was that he had an insight into the unique struggle of pastors. And after that message, Avon and I wept, I would say sobbed, at seeing that he had gone through those things and was victorious and God had strengthened him. And there was a great comfort there of knowing that others had gone through that as well. And I just know for you, whatever struggles you're going through, whatever difficulties you're going through, others have conquered it. Well, at the conference also, I bought a book. I plan on reading out loud to my children. Um, Soon we're going to start. We've got another book we're reading through and pretty soon this one's on the docket. It's called Jesus Freaks tells about a hundred stories of uh, people, short, short vignettes, maybe 300 pages, maybe three, four, five pages each, about people who have either been martyred for their faith or have suffered greatly for their faith in Christ. And, and I want to read this book to my children so that they have a realistic expectation of Christianity and so that also they might see that whatever it is they're going through, they haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in their striving against sin, as Christ did, or as these people have, being martyred for their faith, and that they might find comfort in the stri- trials and struggles of life they go through. Jesus freaks. I want to prepare them for Satan's attacks. They might resist him, firm in the faith, knowing the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by their brethren who are in the world. I want my children to stand firm in the faith. It's just one small attempt at trying to help that. So what is this faith they need to stand in? What's the gospel? It's the good news that Christ died for our sins. We come to God as sinners and He treats us as saints. And all of us still come to God as sinners and He treats us as saints because of Christ who died for us. And if He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? That's what we need to believe. That's what we need to trust in. We face the attacks of the devil. We face them as sinners in desperate need of God's help. And we believe that God will help us. He's helped us in the past. He's pardoned all our transgressions. 
He will help us in the future, guarding us against the devil because we are protected by the power of God through faith for that ultimate salvation and that final day. And now this morning we have an opportunity to express our faith in celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's really a reminder to us of the centrality of Christ upon the cross, centrality of, of our faith, that Christ is one who died for our sins, and God, as He forgave us in Christ, will strengthen us through grace and will carry us on and perfect us to that final day. So the Scripture says we ought to examine ourselves to eat and drink in a manner worthy of the Lord. Is that where your faith is? Is that where your trust is? Are you trusting solely in Christ? He's the only way you're going to get beyond the temptations of the devil brings to your life because it is resist him firm in your faith. So we've done this many times before. We'll do this. Have the men come up. We'll sing some gospel cross-oriented songs and I'll come up and we'll take it together. Let me pray and then we'll transition to that. Lord, I would pray that you would help us now Think about Christ, Him crucified. Reflect in a special way. He told us to do do this in remembrance of Him. May we remember Him. May we look to Him, reflect upon Him, renew our trust in Him, repent of any sin before us. God, we might walk rightly before You. We trust You. We love You. In Jesus' name, Amen. to the gospel songs.